0: And our text this morning is the climactic moment in Ruth and Boaz's story. And it is a love story, but I'm going to warn you up front, it is not a love story like we're used to as modern 21st century Westerners. And there are going to be parts of it that make us a little uncomfortable, and maybe even make us angry. So if at any point you start to feel upset, you start to feel that tension, I just ask that you be patient and try to bear with me until the end. and Hopefully by then I'll have wrapped it all up together and we can see the story for what it really is. Is that fair? Okay. All right. Because it is a love story. <clears throat> And like all good love stories, there's an obstacle that stands in the way of their married bliss, a hurdle that they have to overcome. We saw last week in chapter 3 with Andy that Boaz was a kinsman redeemer of Ruth and Naomi. He was a Goel, but there's somebody who was closer to them. Someone who, if he wanted to invoke his right as kinsman-redeemer, had priority over Boaz. And if he chose to invoke that, Boaz, for all the love that he felt for Ruth, would have to just stand by and watch him marry her. And that right there can rub us the wrong way, right? Like, we, as modern Americans are told that romantic love being in love with the other person is not just the highest but the only thing that should be considered in choosing a spouse. There shouldn't be some sort of law or custom that would prevent this poor impoverished immigrant from marrying the woman or the man that she loves and forced to marry somebody else. But Boaz doesn't kick against that system either. He's a worthy man like we saw back in chapter 2. And he understands that if something is worth doing, it's worth doing right. And so if Ruth is to be his bride, then he will only obtain that goal through full obedience to God's law. We're going to see throughout this passage that Boaz has a heart for God's law. That he doesn't just follow the law to the letter, which he does, but he also gets behind that, deeper than that, to the heart of God in the law. Like I said, we'll get into that in more detail later, but just know starting out that Boaz was clearly a man who would wholeheartedly agree with the psalmist when he said the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb he approaches this obstacle to his love for Ruth, with a confidence that God's way really is the best way, even if it seems to be putting their happiness at risk. So that morning that we saw back in chapter 3, Naomi told Ruth he's not going to delay. He's going to settle this matter today. Boaz goes to the city gate, where all the important business would be done, and he waits. And finally, he sees the man coming, the obstacle in his way. And you have to wonder if it, at that moment, like he knows what he's going to do, but he sees the man, you have to wonder if like his heart starts beating a little faster if his voice caught a little in his throat when he said, friend, come come and sit down here. And he sits down and Boaz calls 10 of the elders of the city to sit with them. And so the other man might not have known exactly what was going on at this point, but he knew it was something important. The city gates were like the courtroom of the day. And Ten Elders was a quorum for any official legal or financial goings-on. Something's about to happen. And we'll see by the end of the chapter that a crowd seems to have formed also, which isn't really surprising in a small ancient agrarian village. Like We might not know what's going on yet, but this is going to be the most interesting thing happening today. And I imagine with one last quick prayer for success, Boaz begins to speak to this other redeemer. And he doesn't say anything about Ruth. Now again, ancient Israelite culture is very different than ours. It's not that surprising that he wouldn't immediately launch on a long, eloquent speech declaring the great love that he has for Ruth and why this other man, if he has any decency in him, would step aside and let their love flourish and blossom. But he doesn't even mention Ruth at all. Instead, he starts talking about the land. He tells him, Naomi's returned... She's come back from Moab without her husband, Elimelech, and without her sons, Malon and Kilion. Her land can be redeemed. Verses three and four, he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And I love the casualness of verse four, right? This is a very different love story than a modern one, but I feel like that line could fit into any rom-com. I, you know, I just figured, like, I'd tell you about it and, you know, buy it if you want, or, I mean, if you don't want to buy it, I I guess I could buy it. (laughs) To fully understand what's going on here... (laughs) To fully understand what's going on here we have to we have to look back at not just god's law concerning the buying and selling of land but also god's heart for the land itself and what it meant for israel so like all good love stories we're going to kind of get into the weeds of ancient agrarian real estate laws Uh, You don't have to turn there. (laughs) You don't have to turn there. But it's in Leviticus 25 that God deals with the buying and selling of land in Israel. And the first thing you have to know is that God says you cannot sell the land or buy land in perpetuity. You cannot buy it and own it outright to do with whatever you want until you either die or die and give it to your children or sell it to somebody else. Instead, when you buy land, it is yours to do with what you will until the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years was supposed to be the year of Jubilee, where all land was returned to its original owner, all slaves were given their freedom, and so you essentially, you couldn't buy land, you could only lease it for up to 50 years, and then it would revert back to its first owner. And on top of that, Leviticus 25 goes on to stipulate that you, if you sell your land because you've become impoverished, that a family member, a kinsman redeemer, a goel, like Andy talked about last week, could buy the land back on your behalf in the name of the family. And why is all that so important to God? He tells us in Leviticus 25:23 when he begins this passage on the laws of buying and selling, he says, "The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine." For you are strangers and sojourners with me. The Israelites couldn't sell their land. They couldn't buy land because it didn't belong to them. It belonged to the Lord. It was his inheritance that he had given to them. You can't sell your inheritance to somebody. You can't buy the inheritance God has given to someone away from them. The land wasn't just a place to live or a source of income for them. It was a real, tangible facet of the covenant that he had made with them. He had promised to Abraham that he was going to make a great nation out of him, a nation from whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. For the ancient Israelite, the grass under his feet That smell of wet earth after a rain, all of the food that he either grew or raised on the land, was a constant reminder that he was part of the inheritance of God's promise. To be cut off from his land was was tantamount to being cut off from God's covenant itself. And so, of course, God provided multiple safeguards to ensure that a person couldn't be cut off from the land or from his covenant either by the act of a kinsman redeemer showing love and compassion for him or the year of jubilee a a man or a woman could not be cut off from his covenant just because they'd fallen on hard times It's easy for us to see God's law as something harsh and difficult, something that's just waiting for us to screw up so it can point out our failings. But that's our own sin and the devil's first lie, twisting and marring it into something that it was never supposed to be. As we can see here in Leviticus 25, even even something as mundane as real estate laws, the heart behind it was to show the beauty of God's grace and his compassion and his desire to see his people remain with him. But we do twist his law. Each of us is a great lawyer when it comes to God's law and our own sinful desires. And by great lawyers, I mean like the most stereotypically sleazy lawyers from a bad TV show. We're great at looking for loopholes to try to get what we want, to try to justify ourselves. We are experts at knowing how to twist and change things and look for those loopholes to get what we want. Or to convince ourselves that we didn't do anything wrong. And I think Boaz knew that this man was the type that was going to pounce on the loophole that was present here. Because there is a loophole. As the kinsman redeemer, he could buy the land from Naomi. Normally He would have to give it back at the year of Jubilee. But Elimelech's dead. Malon and Kilion are dead. Naomi is an aging widow. She's not going to be around forever. She's too old to have kids. She said that herself back in chapter 1. I can buy the land, and I won't have to give it back. You're not supposed to be able to buy land in perpetuity, but I can, in fact, grow my own wealth, my own status, and it will continue on past the appointed time to give it back. I can forever increase my family's standing in the land. You see how different that is than God's heart behind the law of the kinsman redeemer? It was supposed to be a tangible picture of God's Hesed love, his faithfulness, his generosity to his people. It was meant to preserve the spiritual and the financial well-being of the needy. And instead, he sees an opportunity to enrich himself. And so he readily agrees there at the end of verse 4. Yeah, I'll redeem it. And this was all part of Boaz's plan, but you have to wonder if he had a moment of panic there. Like, what if I read this situation wrong? What if I read him wrong? What if this all blows up in my face and I lose Ruth? But there's nothing for it. So he plunges straight ahead in verse 5. Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi... You also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead. Boaz counters the man's loophole with a loophole of his own. But he shows himself to be the better man because his loophole gets back to God's heart behind the law. The land doesn't just come with a responsibility to care for Naomi comes with a responsibility to care for Ruth, who is a young, childless, but still able to have children widow. And that's significant because Boaz mentions the responsibility for caring for Ruth comes with the responsibility of providing her with an heir. It would mean marrying Ruth and carrying on Malon's line for him. Again, you don't have to turn there, but it's in Deuteronomy 25 that God's law deals with how to care for childless widows. And there he says, if a man dies and he has no sons to carry on that line, that his brother is supposed to come and marry her, and that their first son doesn't belong to the widow and her new husband. Legally speaking, that first son is the heir of the woman and her first husband who died without an heir. And that isn't some patriarchal, I'm a man, my line has to last forever. Again, it's God's gracious compassion to not let people be cut off from the hope of his promises. God had promised Abraham that he was going to make a great nation from him, and that through that nation, all the nations of the world would be blessed. But if you were to die before the nation came, what were you really a part of it? But yeah, there's this great nation, but my family isn't there anymore. And it goes even deeper than that, because before God made his covenant with Abraham... He made a promise to Eve when he said, a seed is coming, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. From the very beginning of God's relationship with a broken, fallen, sinful people that he was going to redeem stood the promise that your salvation and your hope is coming, and it's coming through your line. And we know that hope existed from the beginning because I think you can see it even as Eve names her first son Cain and she says, I have born a son with the help of the Lord. My help has come. I think it's safe to assume that there was at least some part of Eve that thought that maybe this first son is already that promised seed. And we can only imagine the devastation that she would have felt when it became very clear that Cain was not that promised hope. We can never, I think, discount the hope every ancient Israelite woman had that maybe her son would be that promised seed. That maybe the time had finally come because remember, this is pre-the incarnation of Jesus. They don't know when the Messiah is coming, but they know he is coming. And maybe, just maybe, my son can bring the deliverance that we've longed for for so long. Infertility is a, still a devastating situation for people to deal with today. But it's hard for us to imagine the loss of hope and the feelings of of being cut off from participation in the hope of, of the Messiah for an ancient Israelite woman. If she couldn't have children, she wasn't just missing out on the joys of parenthood. She was giving up the hope that she could be a part of God bringing salvation to her people. And so, this law, as uncomfortable as it is for us, was God's way of caring for the childless widow. It wasn't just about making sure she would be physically, financially taken care of in a time when she would have had very few options, it was his provision to ensure that she didn't lose her hope in the covenant. So Boaz tells this man, if you want to redeem the land, that's fine. But if you do, you cannot forsake your responsibility to care for Ruth and give her her place in the covenant. And the thing is, the law concerning marrying a childless widow is much narrower in scope than the law for redeeming the land. Redeeming the land, whoever the nearest family member was, was the first choice for a kinsman redeemer. But for marrying the childless widow, it only says brother. So I don't think either of them were obligated to marry Ruth. But Boaz understands God's heart behind both laws. Boaz sets up his argument by saying, you have the first rights to redeem the land. But the purpose of the law is to care and provide for one's family, to show the same kind of Hesed faithfulness to them that God has shown to us, to be a tangible picture of God's generosity. So, how could anyone redeem the land and leave Ruth out in the cold? God's purpose in instituting the kinsman redeemer wasn't so you could find loopholes to grow your own status. It was to be generous like he is generous. To be abundantly loving. To go above and beyond the way that he has. So redeem the land if you want. But Ruth's only hope of provision and belonging is tied to the land. So if you redeem the land, Fine but redeem Ruth too. This was way more than the man had bargained for. He thought he was going to be able to increase his holdings, but this, this is way too great a risk. I think it's safe to assume on how the passage reads that neither of them had any sons already from a previous marriage. So if they were to marry Ruth, their first son doesn't belong to Ruth and the Redeemer. Their first son belongs to Ruth and Malon. What if they only have one son? Then everything goes to him. Then my line is cut off. Now I'm no longer a participant in the covenant because my line is gone. I won't be a part of the nation anymore. That's far too great a price for this other man. So he says in verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Boaz has to be overcome with relief at this point. Ruth, who is so dear to him, who he loves so much for her love and her faithfulness to Naomi and to God and to himself, is going to be his bride. It actually worked. And so the two men make it official in verses 7 and 8. This was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And this might seem like just a really quirky look into ancient customs concerning sealing the deal, like spitting in your hand before shaking. But I think there's something else going on because those Israelites reading this would have immediately thought of another sealing of the deal that involved taking off a shoe that was very different than this one. Because again, back in Deuteronomy 25, when God lays out how the childless widow is to be cared for, he gives the prescription for what to do if a brother is unwilling to do his duty. She's supposed to go to him, and if he refuses, she takes him to the city gates, to the elders, which is where Boaz and this man are. And the elders are supposed to try to convince him to do what is right, to do what God has commanded him to do. And if he still is unwilling, she is supposed to take his shoe off and spit in his face and say to him, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house and the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So yes, Boaz and this other man are following the customs for finalizing a land purchase. But I think it's also a nod to the fact that Boaz is the better man here we're never told this man's name the only name we could give him is the one who had his shoe taken off this other man who could have built up Ruth and Malon's house but he was unwilling to now that it's official Boaz turns to the elders and to the crowd that's gathered in verses 9 and 10 but well, I said to the elders and all the people, "You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Mahlon, and also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon. I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers." and from the gate of his native place. You are my witnesses this day. And I know that language of bot can irk us, that Boaz bought Ruth to be his wife. But I still maintain that this is one of the great love stories Because this is not a story of a man who bought a wife like she was some possession to be had. This is the story of a worthy man who saw Ruth, an impoverished, childless widow, a foreigner, a Gentile, someone outside of God's covenant, and his most earnest desire was to secure her a place in that covenant. He would see her established in the hope of that covenant, even if it was a risk to himself in his own place. And it isn't mentioned anywhere in Ruth, but we know from other passages that Boaz was the son, or maybe the grandson of Rahab, the harlot in Jericho. And so Boaz would have grown up with a firsthand example right in front of him of how it was God's desire to bring people like Rahab and Ruth into the covenant. He himself wouldn't even have been born, let alone been a part of that covenant, if God had not brought into his embrace someone who had no right to be there. So I have to wonder if that's part of Of why he had such a deep love for how God's law brought the helpless and the hopeless to himself. And why he had such a strong desire to see Ruth established into God's covenant. And his hope the way that his mother had. And so he proclaims to the elders and to the whole town of Bethlehem. I have redeemed the land of Melon and Kilion. But more importantly, I have redeemed Ruth. They will not be cut off from the mighty promises of God. He will make a great nation, a nation that will bless all the nations of the world. And Ruth and her family, her children and her children's children and her children's children's children will be a part of that nation and that promise. They will not be cut off And forgotten because I will establish them. That is what you have witnessed here today. And as Boaz says that, the whole town erupts into proclaiming this blessing on Ruth. It sounds almost like a hymn in verses 11 and 12. All the people who are at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. May Ruth be like Rachel and Leah, this woman who up to this point was a Gentile, an outsider, a foreigner, whose only way of feeding herself was picking up the scraps left in the field has now been elevated to a status alongside the mothers of Israel. Rachel and Leah established the 12 tribes of Israel. May you establish a line like that, Ruth. May you be renowned here in Bethlehem. When they speak of us and of this place, May you and your line stand out above the rest. May you be renowned here. When people talk of Bethlehem, let them talk of you and your line. And that last stanza, if you will, seems like an odd choice for a blessing. If you remember the story of Judah and Tamar... It's a story about redeeming a childless widow, kind of. But it is a tawdry, scandalous affair. It is filled with sin and hypocrisy. It's not the sort of thing you want associated with your wedding. But the Bethlehemites were the descendants of Judah. Judah. And so they seem to have this understanding that God took that ugly sin and hypocrisy and he used that to build us up. We would not exist without that. God took something that broken and turned it into something wonderful. He, he, his promise was not broken because of their sin. He used it to bring us, to make us part of that covenant. And so they're saying in the same way that God took that and established us, may he use you to establish a line that will forever be part of the covenant. This is a love story because not only did Boaz fulfill the role of a kinsman redeemer, but because he had the heart of one. He understood that the kinsman redeemer wasn't just a legal office. It was an opportunity to display the overloving, abundant Hesed love and kindness of God. And the reason that we look at Boaz as a Redeemer here and love him for the sort of man that he was, it's because he points to a greater kinsman Redeemer, our Redeemer. Because, like Ruth, we were outsiders, cut off from the covenant of God, we had no way of providing for our needs. We had nothing we could bring to our Redeemer. There was nothing that we could do to change our position. Unlike Ruth, we deserved the mess that we found ourselves in. Unlike Ruth, there wasn't anything noble or worthy in us for our Redeemer to love. Boaz loved Ruth first for the kindness and the love that she had for Naomi, but we'd made ourselves enemies of our Redeemer. The marriage of Judah and Tamar was scandalous. But what could be more scandalous than a holy, righteous God who takes a sinful and rebellious people like us and makes us his people and his bride? And Jesus, our Goel, our Redeemer, didn't wait for us to come from the far-off land. He came to the far-off land to bring us back to himself. Like Boaz, he's willing to redeem his people regardless of the cost to himself. He redeemed us with his own blood. And like Boaz, he was willing and eager to redeem us even if it meant his own place in the covenant changed. He was so eager to see our peace with the Father secured that he was willing for the Father to turn his face away from him. He has forever established and secured our place in God's covenant. He has shown us his abundant, generous Hesed love and kindness in ways that we still can't fathom. And one day we will be with him face to face living forever with our kinsman redeemer. And if you haven't known him as your redeemer yet if you feel like you're still an outsider looking in someone who doesn't have a place in the land someone who hasn't known the kind of love that Christ loves us with, but desperately wants it. then know that this really is the kind of redeemer that he is. This really is the kind of love that he has. And know that he has promised that whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. So come to your kinsman redeemer. And find an abundance of his faithful love. Let's pray. Lord, you are our kinsman redeemer. And the wait that Israel had for your coming is over, even as we remember it during Advent. but we are still waiting for you. You are our redeemer. You have secured our place with you, but we aren't there with you yet. And sometimes it feels like we're still in the far off land. And so I ask that you would make sure our hope and our confidence that you are coming back, that you who have already redeemed your people will not leave us. That one day we will join you at the marriage supper of the Lamb and be your bride. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.